You can be seated. Glad you're here today. Uh, We are back in Luke, Luke chapter 21, verses 5, all the way through 38. And they said it couldn't be done, but I did it one service already, so I think we'll be all right. But we're going to close out this chapter today. Let me just kind of set the stage. Let me say this, because it's so many verses, let me encourage you to get there in your Bible so that you can follow along. I'll be referencing, doing my best to point you back to the Scripture every all along the way. So, so um, it's page 880 in the Bibles that are in the chairs in front of you. And so um, if, if you don't have a Bible, that's yours. Keep it. Uh, it's our gift to you. We'd encourage you to take it. It's the Word of God that works. And so uh, it's, it's the, it has power and He has purpose for it. So take it, read it, uh, study from it. Uh, today uh, will be, I hope, a good example of that. So as you're kind of settling in, across the scope of Luke's gospel, uh, account, just as a, a primer to put us back in the place, we have seen Jesus affirmed as a prophet. In fact, he asked, what do people say, who do people say I am? And they thought he was a prophet. And he, he didn't deny that. He didn't disagree with that. He said, he's like, okay, but who do you say I am? And, and so they knew him to be more than just a prophet. His followers knew him to be more than just a prophet, but he didn't deny that he was a prophet. The people saw him doing God's work, speaking God's word, and doing it with God's power and God's authority. We then saw Jesus affirmed as a king as he went about preaching and teaching he was, te- he was teaching and preaching about his coming kingdom, about the kingdom that was already and the kingdom that was not yet. And when he walked into Jerusalem, when he came into Jerusalem, they received him as a king. And instead of telling them to be quiet, he actually received the worship and the adoration. And, and, and in fact, he said, if they don't do this, the rocks will cry out. Uh, so he recognized himself also as king. Most recently in our study in Luke, we saw him walk into Jerusalem, walk into the temple, cast out the money changers, cast out the merchants, and, and he said, the, the work you're doing, and you've made my father's house a den of thieves. And, and then he began to depose or unseat the high priests, the elders. He began to demonstrate them as hypocrites and, and people who shouldn't be trusted and uh, believed and so he sets himself up as the high priest, the true high priest, one who could be trusted, one who could be, act as a liaison between uh, his people and their God. And so, so he demonstrates to the people that he is the true high priest. These three roles, the covenant people of God had always enjoyed being demonstrated and uh, centered in one man. Today, as we pick up, he, he's going to give us one final. Warning along this line, kind of unseating the religious trappings, the religious perspectives of the day. As he leaves the temple one final time, he's going to talk to his disciples, clearly speaking to his disciples. This isn't a teaching for the crowds. This is a context. This is a speaking specifically to his disciples. And he tells them that there's no hope, no confidence in the future that can be drawn for the temple or anything else that Jerusalem has to offer. The religious trappings of the day are like everything else in the world that this world has to offer, the things that we know today as well. They will leave us wanting and hopeless. But he doesn't leave them hopeless. Because in the midst of all this, in the mix of all this, as he undoes their view of what Jerusalem and their religious views have done, he actually provides them a new hope, a real hope, a, a trustworthy hope. He calls them to trust in him no matter what must first be endured. And so rather than just take my word for it, we're going to read the Bible and let's see it demonstrated there. So beginning chapter 21, verse 5, it says this, And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things, you will see the days that... As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things happen? When, oh my goodness, I started this way in the first service. Let's slow down. Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, we're going to stop right there. I just want to set the stage. He's about to give them an answer to their question. But, 
But here they are. So Jesus has been in the temple all week, going in every day. We're going to see that demonstrated at the end of this passage. Going in every day, preaching the gospel. And this gospel that he's preaching is in opposition to the religious leaders, to the message of the, uh, to, to the, message of the leaders, and to the message of the priests, and, and the practice of Jerusalem at this time. It's radically in, at odds with one another. And they try to kick him out of the temple. They try to uh, unseat him. They try to uh, undo his authority. And he won't have it. In fact, he demonstrates over and over and over their lack of wisdom, their lack of authority, and their hypocrisy. That's what we saw leading up to this place. And so now he's on the way out of the temple and his disciples, his followers, are walking out and they're looking at this magnificent building. And it was a magnificent building. They're looking at this magnificent building and they're thinking not just that it's magnificent, but thinking through what it means for them as a people and and, and what uh, what it represents. And And they're like, Jesus, look at this. Isn't this amazing? And he says to them, this is not going to stand. There's coming a day when it will be run to the ground, that not a stone will be left on a stone. Now, here's the thing. This would have been shocking to them. I don't even think we fully comprehend just how shocking this would have been, this statement would have been. This building truly was magnificent. It demonstrated the creativity and the ingenuity and the, and the craftsmanship that God had established in and among people. It had been under construction for over 40 years and wasn't yet complete. It was consistently being added to and made better and made more beautiful. Herod in this temple had had determined that he was going to make the biggest and most beautiful temple that had ever existed. In fact, the ancient historian Josephus writes this. He's an ancient Jewish historian. He writes this about the temple. The whole of the outer works of the temple was in the highest degree worthy of admiration. For it was completely covered with gold plates which when the sun was shining on them glittered so dazzlingly that they blinded the eyes of the beholders not less than when one gazed at the sun's rays themselves. And on the other sides where there was no gold, the blocks of marble were of, a such, of such a pure white that to strangers who had never previously seen them from a distance, they looked like a mountain of snow. And so maybe when we think of buildings and the magnificence of some of the things we've seen built by men in this world, we don't hear this and think, well, that would be amazing. But, but, but remember what their standard of amazing was. I mean, these are people that lived in huts, right? Probably had thatch roofs. Probably did, I mean, obviously didn't have electricity. Didn't have the, 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 the technology that we have today as we build things. But this would have been impressive to them. This would have been awe-inspiring to them. But before we go getting on our high horse and thinking, well, oh, there's no way we'd get all ex- excited about a building... We just do it with other things other than buildings. I mean, these people were putting their hope. I mean, this, this, this building, this magnificent building, wasn't just about the building. This was the place where God had determined that he was going to dwell among his people. Inside the temple was the Holy of Holies, where God would make his presence known. And this is, this, it's the idea. It's what it represents as much as it is about the magnificence of the building. This has provided for them the center of their religious life, the center of their hope, the center of their identity. And so we may not get all caught out, of, get, get all wrapped up about a building, but as I was writing this sermon, it, it dawned on me that we do it about all kinds of other things. Now, I wrote this sermon for last Sunday because, well, that's when it was going to be preached, but it was the ice storm. We didn't have service. And so, so it was interesting to me as I was preparing this sermon that, there was this uproar about the financial stability of the United States. It's funny to me, in the, in, in the weeks leading up to this, it was crazy. In the week after this, it's like it's not even on the news anymore. I don't even, I'm not hearing about it. But everywhere you turned, you had the talking heads on television telling you these things about how horrible or what a state our financial stability, the American economy, was in. When, it, when I was writing this sermon, there was a, a headline that came across my newsfeed that popped up a notice on my phone that said, the Dow drops another thousand points, second time in a week. And you got these talking heads. Some of them are running around, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, we are in danger. 
And then you got these ones that are saying, oh, no, we can trust the economy. We can hope in the economy. It's stable. You don't, you don't need to be selling everything off. You don't need to be worried because the economy is stable. You can believe in it. You can hope in it. And they're both wrong. They're both absolutely wrong. Because the economy doesn't define us. But we live in a country where even in all the trouble we have, and even in all the uproar and all the problems we face as a country today, the economy is still the third most important thing to most Americans. We are a people who identify ourselves by the stability of our finances and our economy. We find our identity there. We find our blessing there. We find our hope in achieving an American dream. Two cars in a garage and how, I don't know what the number of kids are today that the American dream says you're supposed to have. Is it one and a half or two and a half? Maybe, maybe three and three quarters Whatever it is, that is not Jesus' dream for you. That's not his dream for his people. It's not what he wants for his people. But we are a people who get so caught up in this. We hear and we become afraid. Just imagine this. Just to try to put us in this place. Instead of us following Jesus out of this temple, following Jesus and, and him turning to us and saying, your money your retirement accounts, the paycheck that's coming on Friday, the things that you find your security in will not last. There's coming a day when it will end. That's exactly what these people felt. And I, I don't know, I'm, I'm hoping that this is at least in some of you because if it's not in some of you, it really kind of loses its weight, right? Like the whole illustration kind of falls flat. But if we are counting on our financial systems and stability, we are missing it. Just like these disciples of his were missing it. You see, he had just spent the week leading up to this moment in the temple preaching against the Jewish practices, against the Jewish leadership calling people to trust in him. The last thing he wants is for his disciples to walk out of this building and think that their hope is in the stones and the foundations of that temple. And truth be told, that's the last thing he wants for us. Our hope is not in a 401k. It is not in some American dream. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Him and him alone. And so just think, I mean, because as shocking as it might feel to think that my social security won't be there, my retirement won't be there, my, my, I, I might have to work till I'm 75 or until, until, until the heart quits beating. I might, I might, oh man, I might not achieve the American dream. This is an earth-shattering thing. This was earth-shattering to them. So are we surprised that at their earliest convenience they come up to him? We got to know when this happens. Like, when is this going to happen? I need to be prepared. I need to be ready. What do I look for? What are the signs that are going to precede it so I can be prepared? Well, Luke doesn't give us this detail, but Matthew and Mark do. Give us the detail that he didn't answer this question as he was leaving the city. He answered this question, and they actually asked this question on the side of the Mount of Olives as he was looking back over the temple. And so you can just imagine all the way out of the city. They've left the temple. They're on their way out of the city. They get out of the city and they head up onto the side of the Mount of Olives. And he's sitting there overlooking the city. And they're talking amongst themselves. What do you think he means? The temple's going to be destroyed. How, that, it's, it, how in the world is that going to be possible? You can imagine the, the sense of unease. And well, what are we going to do? John, you're his favorite. Why don't you go ask him? Peter, Peter, he seems to bring you everywhere. He's let you see all kinds of things. Why don't you go ask him? I don't know if those things really happen, but I can almost imagine just because that's what we do, right? We'll talk about them all amongst ourselves. We won't just go to the source. But the beauty of what we've read so far is that you're already beginning to see that he's not going to leave them without some answer. Now, just so you know, 
It's not exactly the answer to the question they want. I love the answer. I actually appreciate the answer. I get told all the time, my wife, she was sitting in the room. She knows this is true. She asked a yes or no question, and I can't give this a yes or no answer because I feel like you have to know why I'm saying yes or why I'm saying no or why I'm not saying no and I am saying yes or why I'm not saying yes and I am saying no. I, gotta, I feel like i got to give all that detail so that you can really understand. See, I'm already doing it, right? You know exactly what it feels like to be her. That's what Jesus is going to do here. And so I don't want you to think that I'm Jesus, but I like being like Jesus. <laughs> so, so here we go. This is a long answer. We're going to read it all. So you need to follow along. You need to stay with me. And then we're going to highlight some things after we get to the other end. He says, beginning again in verse 7, just for context, they asked him, teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray for many will come in my name saying, I am he and he and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified for these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, it's only going to get worse. I mean, this is, is, golly, what is going on? But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness, settling your mind, therefore, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of them will put you to death. Like, are you all ready? Let's go. Let's go sign up. Let's get in line to take part in this. Man, this is tough. And I'm, I mean, I'm, I don't think I'm a hellfire and brimstone kind of preacher, but I mean, this feels like a lot of hellfire and brimstone, right? But in the midst of all of this hopelessness, he comes to this next phrase, beginning in verse 17, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, verse 18, but, but, here's contrast, but not a hair of your head will perish. Not meaning that you won't die. He just said some are going to be put to death. None, you will not perish. You will not be given away to utter destruction or even fully separated from God. Not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. In the midst of hopelessness, he offers hope. But and again, here's another contrast. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this People, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on earth, the stress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring seas and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And they will see, again, hope in the midst of this hopelessness. They will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Hope for some of us, not hope for others. Now, when these things begin to take place, this is interesting to me. He doesn't say cower in fear. He doesn't say run and hide. When these things begin to take place, straighten up. Raise your head because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, 
This generation will not pass away until all this has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Right in that verse, right in that verse is these contrasting ideas. Hopelessness in this world, but hope because of his word. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day, every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. That's why I think he's out, uh, not why I think, that's how we know he's out on the Mount of Olives at this point, looking back over the cities, camping there every night. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. And I think this answer comes just before the night that he's going to celebrate the Passover with his disciples and be betrayed and arrested by the Jewish people. Because of where he is, when he gives this answer, we know, like I said, we know he's on the Mount of Olives based on Matthew and Mark's telling of this same event. We, we call it the Olivet Discourse. Many of you may be familiar with it. I want to summarize it just in two, or just a few different ways. So, because here's the thing. Jesus did not teach this to support our presupposed eschatological or end times views. Jesus did not teach this in such a way that we were meant to know all the, all the events with specificity. He didn't teach this in such a way that we could pinpoint dates on a calendar and know this is when it's coming. It seems that Jesus does this. And let me just tell you what he does. First, he summarizes it. I would summarize it this way. Jesus prophesies the destruction of the temple. You see that back at the beginning of the passage in verse six, he, 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 uh, prophesies the, the end of Jerusalem or the Jerusalem being trampled underfoot. He does that in verse 24. And he talks about his eventual return and how people will be falling in fear and when the, he will be coming with power and great glory. Prophesying these three things, but he doesn't just stop the prophecies there. He begins to prophesy persecutions of his followers. You heard it. They're going to take you and some of them, they're going to jail you, they're going to try you, and some of you are going to die. He prophesies the, the terrible trials that everyone in the world will face and experience, and some specifically for his followers, and, and, and leading up to the end days, how that's going to continue until his return. You know, Bible scholars, they have a difficult time separating out through this. You, know, you might feel like, oh, I got an idea how the flow is going to go, and I can pick this out in the, in, in the translation, but, but, but just, just let's agree on this. None of us probably are the best and smartest Bible scholar that exists out there today. Can we, can we agree there? Like, I, f I feel like I know a little bit about the Bible, but man, I am not nearly as smart as some of the people that write and think and pick these things apart. So, so I, I, I can admit that. Can we all agree that we're probably not the best Bible scholars that are out there today? But what happens is among some of these people that sit around and all they do is think about this stuff and, and, and pour apart and pick apart the original languages and think through it and try to figure out how it has implication, they, they have a difficult time separating out what is exactly what Jesus is talking about in terms of near term and far term. What is he talking about is going to happen specifically to these people and what's going to happen after these people are gone. They have a hard time of understanding exactly what he's talking about and whether these are near events or far events, whether they are, are, are things that are going to happen along the way in a, in a particular process or they're just going to be things that are all going to come all at the end times and that's when we expect them, that none of them have happened or some of them have happened and anyway, there's all this different perspectives happening. In fact, there's more debate on this than agreement. So as we look at this, I don't think that Jesus gave us this so that we could, so we could prop up our presupposed ideas about whether I'm post-millennial, pre-millennial, or amillennial, or, or, or I'm partial preterist, preterist or futurist, or whatever. I, 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 I know I am a dispensational, uh, pre-millennial, uh, whatever, because, because this passage, I don't think he gave us this passage so that we could work out fully and firmly that we're covenantal in our theology of the end times. And, and, and the reality is, is that some of you in the room might be thinking, what in the world is he talking about? And that's okay. Because you don't get your security in even knowing the definitions of those words. 
But some of you know those definitions and you've got it worked out so much that you feel secure because you know the definition of those words and which one you hold to. Your hope is not in how specific you view the end times. Your hope is that when the end times begin to unfold in front of us, Jesus will still be there. You see, he told this to his followers, I think, not to give us an explicit end times timeline. I think he gave this to us so that he would lead his followers away from trusting in the Jewish systems and for us trusting in religion and trusting in financial systems and trusting in governments and trusting in American dreams. To lead us away from trusting in everything that the world has to offer to prepare us then to endure in faith as long as he tarries. This is what there seems to be agreement upon. In all the disagreement, there's one place that all these people come to an agreement. He is calling his people to be faithful to him no matter what comes. So that brings us to the big idea, I think, of this sermon and this text. A Christian's enduring faith in Jesus leads to salvation in the end because Jesus' enduring faithfulness is endless. The length, the, the list of things that are going to fail and fall, they're, 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 they're long. Let me just hit three. In verse six, he talks about the temple's going to be destroyed. This thing, this, this building that they had put so much hope in, that they sought so much identity from, it's going to fail. It's going to be torn to the ground, this building that took 40 plus years to build. Uh, 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 someone's going to come in and tear it down in, in like a year. In verse 24, Jerusalem's going to be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. And it still is. In verse 33, it hasn't happened yet, but he promises us that the heavens and the earth will pass away. What if I'm still here breathing some air and needing some heavens and earth around me? That's going to happen? Even the very ground which we stand on will not support us. But all the way through this list of the things that fail are things that will not fail. Verse 10, the security of Jesus' followers. Just look at it. Or I'm sorry, verse 18, where he says, not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. There's security there. There's a promise that he is going to sustain us there. There's a promise that endurance gives way to something better there. Verse 27, Jesus returning with power and glory when the heavens and earth are failing, when Jerusalem has been trampled under, its, under, under the feet of the Gentiles, when, when the temple stands no more. Here comes Jesus with power and great glory, not diminished in his glory in the least bit, more glorious than we've ever seen him to be. Verse 28, the hope of Jesus' followers will never fail because Jesus never fails. He says, now, when these things begin to take place, when everybody around you is going to be fretting, when everybody around you is going to be thinking, what in the world are we going to do? This is a time for us to straighten up, to lift our heads, and to know that the kingdom of God is at hand, that our redemption is near. This is a time to take hope, not lose hope. And in verse 33, while the heavens and earth are passing away, his words will not pass away. His is a promise that will never fail. You see, Jerusalem fell. The, the temple fell. Our systems, our economic systems, our governments, our, our American dreams are going to fail. One day our checks are going to bounce even though the money's supposed to be there. One day we're not going to have everything we had hoped for. One day we're going to find ourselves fraught with distress because the systems that we planned on for all of our lives are going to fail us. But what will never fail is his word. His word is the check that you take to the bank. His word is the certainty and the security that gives you the reason to get up and keep going in the morning. His word is the thing that surprises us with the reality of its truth and its hope and its preciousness and its majesty and its glory. 
This is the thing that we can count on. And if we're counting on any other thing, whether it be a credential or a, a, a bank account or a retirement, then we are missing the point. And we're hoping in things that are hopeless. Please don't misunderstand. As I speak, man, with passion and concern for our people, I'm not saying don't get the degrees and don't put away for retirement, but don't ever hope in them more than you hope in Christ. When they fail, don't be surprised because he is still here. He is still coming. He is still powerful. He is still glorious. And his word will still prove true. In the midst of all this hopelessness, we have great reason to hope. In the midst of all this hopelessness, we have great reason to stand up, straighten up, and lift our heads and look to heaven. And see, the thing is, is that it is difficult to know exactly what he's saying and, and whether he's talking about near-term events and far-term events. And, and the reality is we know some of these things have already happened. We know that some of this has already occurred. And because of that, I think we can know that some of these things apply, have an, a specific application to these people. I mean, as an example, the things that have already happened, we kind of already touched on them. The Jer Jerusalem has been overrun. The temple has been destroyed. This magnificent, marvelous building was destroyed. In 70 AD, Titus, a Roman uh, general who became a Roman emperor, came into the city of Jerusalem, attacked it, and, and, and took it over. He won. Now, here's what's interesting about that. Three or four years earlier, 66 AD, 67 AD, some, somewhere late 66, early 67, the, the, the Christians that were there in that time began to see this happen. And the, and the early church historian Eusebius records that they understood this was the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy that Jerusalem was going to be overtaken and that the temple was going to fall. And they all did exactly what he said to do, and they left the city. And because of that, when it fell in 70 AD, there, nearly every Christian was out of the city and, and gone and protected because they had listened to Jesus and his prophecy. So I think there's probably some specific application that went to, to those people, some specific things that they needed to consider, that they needed to think about and be prepared for. Because it seems that some of what has happened, or some of what he's prophesied has already happened. But it also seems that there's a lot of things still going on, right? Like persecution of Christians is still a thing that's going on. We, we don't have to disagree about that, right? I mean, we can see. You see it on the news periodically where, where men are walked out on a beach in orange suits and knelt down and, and their throats are cut because they will not uh, uh, deny the name of Jesus. And in turn, they, they uh, will not submit themselves to the teaching of Islam. We, we can agree that, they, that, that in China and that there's Christians that are arrested and beaten and killed. We can, we, we can agree that across the world that there is still persecution of Christians going on. We can agree that that's still a thing happening. So, so his call for persecution, his prophecy of the persecution that his followers are going to endure, it still continues. Families continue to be separated over the gospel. The gospel continues to divide people, even mother from children, or mother and father from children, and children, brothers and sisters from each other. I shared this in the first service, not part of my notes, but there was a period of time where because of, of my belief and my stance in the gospel, I wasn't always welcome among my brothers and sisters. And I'm not saying that to get your pity, it's a reality. It was about a year and a half ago, we finally were able to sit down and have a conversation. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to drop my convictions of what the gospel calls me to. But because I will not relax my convictions of the gospel, I was told I was removed from an invitation list. It still happens. Now, I've been given the blessing of an opportunity to kind of reconnect and, and be able to see, uh, seek to be a gospel influence. My mom, because of who she is in our family, in many ways wasn't separated out, and she maintained an ability to be a gospel influence. But that doesn't happen for everybody. It's a real thing. It still happens today. Nation still rising against nation. And there's an article I came across in the New York Times to, from 2003 that, that states this. Of the past 3,400 years, humans have been entirely at peace. We're saying there's no war. 
have been entirely at peace for 268 of them. 268 of the last 3,400 years, it says. Or just 8% of recorded history. I think that's a demonstration. We have always been at war. Nation is going to rise against nation. People are going to rise against people. So while I think there's a specific application for the people that lived in that day, I think there's very strong implication and application for, for us still today. Philip Ryken puts it this way in the Reformed Expository Commentary. He says this, The principle holds true for every believer in Christ. In the dangers of life, whether great or small, our only hope of refuge is found in the promises of God. To the weak, he promises strength. To the troubled, he promises peace. To the tempted, he promises a way of escape. And to the penitent sinners, he promises full deliverance from everything our sin deserves. In the midst of all the mess that surround us, our hope has always been and will always be the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the only hope we have because it is the only thing that will stand. And we know it will stand because even though some of these things have happened and some continuing to ha continue to happen, there are things that are yet to happen that he speaks of. He hadn't come back yet. We're not on a new heaven and new earth yet. I, I mean, I think it's obvious. We don't, you know, it's not it. We're not there. Still broken, still sinful. Jesus hasn't returned but if this is proven true, I don't know why we begin to doubt this final one. This last thing that he has, says that's going to happen is that his return will be with power and great glory. The reason we can continue to endure, the reason we can continue to follow after him and, and express our faith towards him and not towards any of these other things is because he is proving faithful and will prove Faithful because his promises will always be fulfilled. When heaven and earth passes away, his word will not pass away. So what does that look like? How do we do this? What does it mean to endure in faith like this? How can we hope for salvation in this way? What is, I mean, because that's what it kind of calls us to, right? Endurance, you, by, by your endurance, you'll gain your lives and and the big idea is that by endure, we, we endure in faith and that leads to salvation because Jesus is endlessly faithful. Enduring faith in Jesus will discern truth from lies. That's explicitly described to us in the text. Enduring faith in Jesus will discern truth from lies. See, when doomsdayers like, like Harold uh, Camping come and they're like, oh, here's the date, need to get ready. No, just... I don't mean to be rude about Harold Camping in the sense that, I mean, he's dead, so I don't want to tread on his memory, but I want you to know men like him are heretics. They are liars and should be called liars. Jesus says, when they come telling you that they are me, and he never said that, but he did say, hey, the end is at hand. This is the date. You need to know it. Be ready. Here's the date. Know that they're liars. Discern the truth from lies. When Richard Baker gets on television, which he does regularly, I think it's like every once a week he has a show. Maybe it's regularly more than that. I don't know. But he gets on and starts selling you buckets full of food because that's your only hope in the apocalypse. You've got to get some food. And he's rising to monetary power because he's living on the backs of Christians who he's making afraid. Discern the truth from the lie. Listen, he said, Jesus says, he said, when they start coming and they start telling you they're him and they, here's the days and they, you need to be ready, call them what they are. They're liars. But he doesn't just tell us to think about this truth in terms of people who come speaking lies. In fact, I think that he calls us to discerning truth in the midst of our circumstances and situations. Like trials for us, trials for the Christian, enduring in faith, recognizing truth from lies. Trials are opportunities to respond in faith, not fear. Listen how he says this. When you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. Wait, 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 what? Like when I hear about North Korea wanting to press a button and send a nuclear warhead to the United States, I'm not, I'm not supposed to be terrified? Do not be terrified. That means don't be afraid. 
Instead, we can follow it all the way down. Believe, your, not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Trust him. Live in faith, not fear. All the, all the troubles around us. He says it in verse uh, uh, where are we at? Verse 25, there will be signs of the moon, stars on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the seas, people fainting with fear and foreboding of what is coming. Just ter- 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 terrifying and scared what is going on. Stand up. Straighten up. Raise your head and know that your redemption is at hand. Trust me. Don't look at your circumstances and determine your security. Trust me. Don't look at the troubles of the world and think I forgot you. Trust me. Trials are opportunities to respond in faith, not fear. Rejection and persecution are opportunities to be preachers, not punks. Now, I'm going to get a little bit personal here, but I'm talking about myself first. And if this applies to you, then don't get mad at me because it applies to me. He says to us, when all this happens, when you start getting persecuted, when you start getting uh, accused, when you start getting um, um, people not liking you, when your family starts turning you over, this is an opportunity for you to be a witness. You know my inclination? To turn inward and think all about myself. Why don't they like me? What have I done to deserve this? And I sit and I moan about the troubles that I face. Forgetting that they face the same kind of troubles and they don't have the hope I have. Why am I getting unfriended off of Facebook? Like, I mean, this is the biggest thing in my life. That's what a punk does. I'm a punk. And if you're joining me in this, you can be a punk too. But Jesus says, look at the truth in this. Look at what's true. When they come against you, when they speak out against you, when they begin to cut you off because of the gospel, not because you're a jerk, really. I mean, if you're really a jerk, you deserve to be cut off, right? But if the gospel is what's dividing you, this is an opportunity for you to be a witness, he says. And this is, not, this is not some reason to run and hide. This is not some reason to turn inward. This is a reason to begin to preach the gospel. And a beautiful example of this, Acts chapter 4, John, Peter and John are walking along and they come to a guy who can't walk and he says, give me money. And they say, we don't have money, but what we have is this. Get up and walk. And the guy gets up and walk and they preach the gospel and lots of people start believing the gospel. And it's amazing. And the Jewish leaders don't like it. So they say, quit preaching the gospel. And they arrest them. It's a synopsis. Go back and read Acts chapter 4. There's more to it than this. But... The next day, they assemble the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, and they say, quit preaching the gospel. And they're like, nope, I'm not going to quit preaching the gospel. In fact, in their answer, they preach the gospel, and, well, what are you going to do? Right? This is their reaction. The reaction of the Jewish council, the reaction of the Sanhedrin. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, this is Acts chapter 4, verse 13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. Now, this might seem like an insult, right? uneducated common men, who who are you to even be speaking to us? But they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. What did Jesus promise them? Let's look back over here. Luke chapter uh, 21, verse 13. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Sell it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate. Verse 14, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. Verse 15, how? For I will give you a mouth and a wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. These uneducated men, common, uneducated common men, stood in front of this educated Jewish council, and they spoke the truth of God, and none of them could contradict it. In fact, they had to shut up because they were so astonished that these men had been with Jesus. When the earth and the heavens are passing away, away, his word will not pass away. 
If it hasn't been passing away, why would we begin to think it's going to pass away? Listen, rejection and persecution are opportunities for us to be preachers, not punks. That's the, that's the idea that we're going to get up and we're going to go speak the truth. And we have the solution. I mean, you just consider this. Just think about this. Our country is fraught with trouble. The reason news exists is simply to tell us all the bad things that are happening. Like, you don't hear a lot of good news, do you? No, they're telling us all these horrific, horrible things that are happening. It's no wonder we're such a jacked up group of people because that's what we listen to all the time. These talking heads getting up on television telling us all these horrible things that are happening. We're filling our minds with that instead of filling our minds with the truth. But here we have an opportunity. We have the gospel. We have the truth of God that never fails. We have the source of truth that is the source of hope, not just for us, but if they would listen to it, if they would believe it, and if they would follow after him, it would be the source of hope for them. It would be the very thing that would turn their lives right side up so that they could join us in standing up and looking up and knowing that their redemption is at hand. That's the very thing they need. This is what this is about. I, I, I think this is a beautiful opportunity in our time. I don't get discouraged by all the trouble we face in our world. Because I think our country, I think our people, our city, our state, our nation, I think that our people are ripe so that we can begin planting the seeds of the gospel that will give way to the gospel fruit that is eternal life. And you and I have been blessed Blessed. This is, not, this is not a weight. It does have some responsibility with it, but we are blessed with the opportunity to live in this day and speak truth into a people that understand how broken it is. They already see the brokenness. All they need is the answer for what will fix it. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we have the only answer what the world fears. So, 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 so trials and opportunities to respond in faith, not fear. We see that's a truth that we've got to discern. Rejection and persecution are opportunities to be preachers, not punks. Another truth we've got to discern. And finally, what the world fears is the end we know is really the beginning. Here's this. Uh, oh, man, it just, it just overwhelms me to think of this. We define our eternity based on the trouble we face in this moment. Like, it's going to be terrible. Like, I had a bad day at work. i got to just quit. i got to go on and find something good and fun, and I appreciate doing it. <sighs> Can't believe these people treat me this way. And we define our whole life based on what we experience in the moment. What Jesus is telling us is that all these, all these things that are happening, all these terrible things that are coming are not eternal. Even they end for the believer. This, this, brothers and sisters, is just the beginning of eternity. The trials, the tribulations, the struggles, the, the problems we face, these are temporary because the power of Christ will put them at an end. He tells us that the wrath of God is being revealed here, but there's a day when we will no longer be near it. We will be standing in his presence. And just imagine this, just imagine this, that 10,000 years separated from it, we singing the glories of Christ together, living on the new heavens and the new earth, still just the beginning 10,000 years is a drop in the bucket when you compare it to eternity. This light and momentary trouble that we carry is temporary. It's a wisp of smoke. There's a day when we will not even be able to remember it clearly because we will be so overwhelmed by the beauty and perfection of his presence. This trial that you face today, this difficulty that you endure in this moment, the one that's coming tomorrow that you don't even know yet, is temporary. It does not identify you. It does not rule you. What rules you is the word of God that never fails. Jesus Christ is coming with power and great glory to bring you to be with him forever. That's our hope. And I, I can't help but get excited about it. I hope you're bubbling up with me because I'm looking forward to it. Because I am so tired of the weight of sin that plagues our people. 
Even so, come Lord Jesus, come. But I look forward to this because there is a day coming that that sin will be put where it belongs. And we will stand in our new bodies with our new minds and our new living souls in his presence, never to be separated. That's the truth we got to hang on to. That's the truth we got to discern. The second, enduring faith in Jesus will will remain watchful for him. So we, we will discern truth. Enduring faith in Jesus will remain watchful for him until he returns. That's what endurance is about. Like it's going all the way. It's like finishing, right? This is all the way to the end. It doesn't mean that we won't wax and wane over the course of that. It doesn't mean that we won't, that we won't mess it up. But we remain watchful, looking every day for his return. J.C. Ryle says it this way. The servant of God must surely see that there is only one state of mind which becomes the man who believes these things. That state is one of perpetual preparedness to meet Christ. I love that phrase, perpetual preparedness to meet Christ, living every day watching for him, living every day seeking to be ready to meet him. The gospel does not call us to retire from earthly callings or neglect the duties of our stations. It does not bid us retire into hermitages or live the life of a monk or a nun. So the Christian shouldn't give up the things that we do in the world. But we should live every day as if it could be the last. He could come back before we close the sermon. He could come back before I finish my next sentence. And wouldn't that be great? You're like, yeah, it would be great. (laughs) Absolutely, it would be great. I'd love not to finish the sermon. But if he doesn't come, you need me to finish this sermon. We need to think through these things because he may not come back before I finish my next sentence. Practically speaking, this is just what it looks like. Living every moment as if he will come back, but living every moment as if he might tarry, but ready still for him to come back, not clinging so tightly to this world that we don't want to let go of it or that it means more to us than his return. So I put it this way. People ask me, what's your eschatological view? What's your end times view? And I'm not perfect. This is my theory. I'm not perfect. I don't want you to get it. But, but instead of po- putting all my hope in pre-mill, all-mill, post-mill, all that junk, I, I mean, I know the language. I know the words. Instead of, instead of all that, here's my end-time view, and I would encourage you to adopt it because I think it's the best one. Judge that for yourselves. <laughs> live every moment ready for him to return. And live every moment preparing others for him to be ready. To be ready for him to return. So practically, what that looks like in my life is this. When I began to understand that, when I began to comprehend this, I quit thinking that the best thing that I could do for my kids is get them in soccer teams and basketball teams and make sure they had the right grades at school, although I wanted them to do well in school. The best thing I could do for them is prepare them to meet Jesus Christ. And recently I found out... Sorry. I did better... I did better in the first service because they're not sitting in front of me. And I think the motion is richer this service for whatever. Anyway, you're a better group of people, I guess. (laughs) Don't tell the first service I said that. We got to edit that out. This is a recording we use. Can't tell that. No, seriously, I found out recently I'm going to be a grandfather and and, and, and what that means for me is I'm going to live every day myself ready to meet Jesus. And I'm going to do everything I can to ensure that my children, my children-in-laws, and my grandchildren are ready to meet Jesus. It doesn't end there. I've given my life to making sure that everybody I have an opportunity to is ready to meet Jesus. But this goes so far in my mind that I think not just about those who I have instant, constant contact with. I want my great-grandchildren to meet Jesus. Now, I'm young enough. I'm just going to say this. So I'm young enough that I might get to meet my great-grandchildren. It might happen. Don't think I'm so old that I can't. it, It may happen. But if I don't, I'm going to do everything I can that my children and my grandchildren are ready to lead my great-grandchildren to know Jesus. And not just their children, 
their children's friends and their neighbors and the people that they work with. Because living every moment ready to meet Jesus recognizes that living every moment helping others be ready to meet Jesus is more important than there's anything else that we can do. So practically speaking, I'm going to perpetually prepare myself and anyone else that I can have an opportunity to perpetually prepare. That's what it looks like. But one final thought about enduring in faith. Enduring in faith is also, in Jesus will remain dependent upon Jesus. And I love the way this passage closes, not just about what he does in the temple, but as he closes this answer, he says, but stay awake, remain watchful, keep alert, be perpetually prepared. This, he's building out this idea, stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things. You know what's amazing to me about this is he's called us to endurance. He's told us about all the horrible things that are going to happen and what we're going to have to endure. But then he doesn't leave it upon us to have the power to endure, to endure it, to, to do it, to accomplish it. He says, while you're remaining ready, while you're remaining watchful, while you're not being distracted and overcome with overindulgence in the things of the world, he says, remain watchful and pray for strength. Because not only does he want you to know the end is coming, he wants you to know that he has power for you to endure to the end. And all we got to do is ask. All we got to do is seek him. All we got to do is look at him and depend on him and trust him. He doesn't want us to figure out how to get there on our own. He wants us to turn to him and say, help me. And he will. And we know he will because while heaven and earth will pass away, his word will never pass away. So listen, our hope is not in our eschatological perspectives. Our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is not in our bank accounts. Our hope is not like those apostles. It's not in the religious trappings of the world in buildings and in, in systems of hypocrisy that were leading them away from him. Our hope is always in him. Our hope is not in the end that we will know him. And I hear you thinking, wait a minute, I thought that's what you said. Our hope, our true hope, the confidence we can take in the future, the confidence we can take in the end is that Jesus will know us. And because he knows us, we will know him. That's our hope. So, Christians, endure. Don't overindulge. Don't run around in overindulgence and, and dissipation. The word used for dissipation there is hangovers. Don't overindulge to the point, and I'm not talking about just alcohol. I'm talking about overindulging in all the things of the world. Don't overindulge in those things. Remain watchful, discerning truth, and praying for strength. Non-Christian. And I know many of you are thinking, oh, when we... We know most everybody here, it gotta be, everybody gotta be Christian, right? I mean, these people, we, we see them day in and day out. I am convinced in our church, even a church like ours, a church our size of 100, 150 people, that there are people who are counting on their religion to save them. I just wanna plead with you in the midst of this package, in the midst of this passage that says the religious systems will fail. Quit trusting in religion and trust in Jesus Christ. He is your only hope. A prayer that you said as a child that did not give way to gospel fruit to this day has failed you. If you were baptized as a child but there has never been a desire for Christ or the things of Christ or a longing for him in any way, then that was just a bath. Quit Trusting in religion. Quit trusting in something that you did. Trust in him. And maybe you've never known a religion to trust in. Hear that same call. Trust in him. He will never fail. Let's pray. Father God. Thank you for your grace and your goodness, even in these days of difficulty. <laughs> that you are mindful of us, that you consider us. It amazes me that you have plans for us, that you have bright futures ahead of us, that you have hope that we get to enjoy until that day. 
shocking to me. May we be more shocked by the glory of your grace than knowing that this world is ending. May we be more astonished by the movement of your spirit among us and through us than we are that things didn't work out in our circumstances exactly like we had planned. May we maintain our focus. May we be able to discern truth. May we, Father, by the power of your spirit, remain watchful, keeping an eye out for you. Praying every day for one another for strength to make it. To endure the things that will come and to stand before you. I pray these things, Jesus, in your name, Spirit, by your power. Amen.